undoubtedly the most famous scholar in Europe and indeed in the world at the turn of the 16th century was the Dutch humanist Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus was a man driven by three primary impulses. The first was Renaissance humanism, grammar, rhetoric, history, poetry, and moral philosophy. In other words, the the humanist prized above all things learning and logic and literature. That was their world. Ad fontes, to the sources, was the cry of the humanists. And they helped Western civilization recover the classics of ancient Greece and ancient Rome after a thousand years of darkness. The second impulse that drove Erasmus was moralism. Humanists were devoted to the study and the practice of ethics, defining and defending the concepts of right and wrong and good and evil and truth and falsehood, virtue and vice, justice and injustice. And the third impulse was rationalism. Humanists placed a high value on the authority of human reason. It was unlikely that a humanist would believe anything that he couldn't fully understand. Now, all of these impulses, humanism, moralism, rationalism for Erasmus, they were all cloaked and enveloped and and permeated through by his sincere Christian faith. Erasmus was a Christian, a, a sincere Christian, who was greatly disturbed at the state of the Catholic Church at the turn of the 16th century. With his sharp pen and his satirical wit, Erasmus, quote, attacked the ritualism, sacramentarianism, and scholasticism of his day. He fought the the corruption of the clergy and of the monks. He was a staunch foe of all superstition and paganism to be found in popular religion. In other words, Erasmus was a fierce critic of the medieval church. In fact, Erasmus was indirectly responsible for launching the Reformation, In 1516, he published the Greek New Testament based upon the best Greek manuscripts available at the time. Now, combined with the recent invention of the printing press, this marked the first time that the Western church had access to the New Testament in its original language rather than the less-than-ideal Latin translation that had dominated the church for a thousand years. The recent invention of the printing press made Erasmus's Greek New Testament widely available throughout Europe. In fact, it was his New Testament that Luther used as he was coming to his Protestant convictions, and which he used to translate the New Testament into German. In more ways than one, the statement of Erasmus's monastic opponents is true. They said that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. By all appearances then, Erasmus and Luther should be friends, right? Well, they weren't. Though initially an admirer of Luther's reforming work, Erasmus grew increasingly disturbed by what he was hearing out of Luther's Wittenberg. The division finally came to a head over the issue of grace, predestination, and free will. In 1524, Erasmus published an attack on Luther's doctrines of grace entitled On Free Will, to which Luther responded the following year with his On the Bondage of the Will. In so doing, Erasmus and Luther squared off in a theological debate that had been raging really since the century when Augustine had faced down Pelagius over the very same issues. In his work, Erasmus appealed to Scripture. Although he admitted that that passages of Scripture could be marshaled on both sides of the debate for proof. He appealed to the church fathers, although the same problem applies. The same fathers could be quoted by both sides. Their writings are often ambiguous on the matters. But Erasmus' essential argument against Luther dealt with the nature of moral responsibility. He asked, how can God hold man responsible for his actions? If those actions, and indeed their eternal destinies, are predetermined. Well, when Luther responded, 
He first praised Erasmus for going straight to the heart of the matter and not bothering him with peripheral matters like the Pope or purgatory or indulgences. Luther said, you alone have attacked the real thing, that is, the essential issue. You alone have seen the hinge on which all turns. You've aimed for the vital spot. In other words, Luther was saying that he and Erasmus had realized that the real issue between them were that they had two very different views of God and man. Luther's main thesis, his main argument, was that if Erasmus wanted to leave man to his own free will, he did not know for which he was asking. For man, since the fall, is in bondage, hence the name of Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. Our wills are curved in on themselves. Rather than being directed towards God and his glory, they're curved in on themselves, corrupting all of our affections and all of our actions. Erasmus's mistake, said Luther, was that he had radically overestimated the fallen nature of man. Left to himself, said Luther, man will always and inevitably choose self rather than God. He said, you are no doubt right in assigning to man a will of some sort. But to credit him with a will that is free in the things of God is too much. Therefore, if any man is to be saved, if any man, according to Luther, is to repent of sin and embrace Christ by faith, the will to do so must come from outside of him. It must be the direct result of the working of God's grace within him. Only when God liberates that enslaved will, straightens that that soul that is curved in on itself, only then, Will man believe? And whom does God so liberate? Asked Luther. Whom does God free from this bondage to sin and self and Satan? His answer was those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. He said the only infallible preparation for grace is the eternal election of God. Now, Luther anticipated that some, including Erasmus, would object that such a doctrine turns God into an arbitrary ogre. But Luther's answer was this. God wills it so, and because he wills it so, it is not wicked. Now, Reformation scholar Timothy George sums up the debate in these terms. He said, Luther refused to subject God to the bar of human justice. As though the majesty that is the creator of all things must bow to one of the dregs of his creation. Let God be good, cried Erasmus the moralist. Let God be God, replied Luther the theologian. Now as I read verses 14 to 29 of Romans 9, I find Paul decidedly siding with Luther. In this debate. In fact, let God be God, I think, functions splendidly as a summary of the entire passage, much so that I entitled the sermon that. Because it appears that Paul's response to the two objections that he's going to face, the first in verse 14, the second in verse 19, his response is let God be God. In Romans 9 to 11, Paul is responding to the massive theological crisis that has been created by Israel's unbelief, culminating in her rejection of Christ. Because of her unbelief, Israel is accursed and cut off from Christ, verse 3. Having squandered all of her immense privileges, verses 4 and 5. And this fact brings Paul tremendous anguish and great sorrow. Verses 1 and 2. But the crisis is much larger than Israel's present accursed status. Israel's unbelief and consequent rejection have made it appear that the word of God has failed. That his promise has come to naught. God promised 
Israel an everlasting covenant. He promised Israel everlasting salvation through a coming Messiah. But now Israel has rejected that Messiah and thus has forsaken that covenant. And so it appears that God said he would save Israel, but, but he couldn't. He promised he would, but he didn't. It appears that Israel's unbelief has triumphed over God's word. And that's a massive problem for Paul, and that's a massive problem for the church, because God has made the same unconditional promises to us. A promise of an everlasting covenant, and of everlasting salvation. A promise summarized in that climactic passage at the end of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's answer is nothing. But if Israel can forsake the covenant through unbelief and render themselves accursed and cut off from Christ, what does that mean for us? Can we too be accursed and cut off from Christ if we prove unfaithful to the covenant? If our eternal salvation depends upon our own will, can we have any real or lasting confidence or assurance? Well, Paul's answer given in verses 6 to 13 is that the word of God has not failed. By no means, he says. Why? Because God never made the promise of eternal salvation to all Israelites, but only to some. Second half of verse 6. God never made the everlasting covenant with all of Abraham's children, but only with the children of the promise. Namely, Isaac, verse 7. In fact, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, verse 8. And what we might ask makes the difference between the two. What, what makes the difference between Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, the children of the flesh and the children of the promise? Well, Paul points to God's choice of Isaac and not Ishmael, verse 9, of Jacob and not Esau, verses 10 and 12 to 13, in order to demonstrate that his choice of one over the other is not dependent upon our own will or our own works or our own faith or our own faithfulness, our merit or our virtue, deservedness. It is according, verse 11, to God's purpose of election. The determining factor in who is included in the everlasting covenant of God's salvation is God's will, not ours. The word of God has not failed because God never promised to save all Israel. He promised to save all whom he has chosen. Now Luther knew that this was a hard doctrine. He said, this is very strong wine, solid food for the strong. It runs counter to human reason, which is why Erasmus, the rationalist, Erasmus, the humanist, could not accept it. It runs counter to our innate man-centered nature, our souls, which are, in the words of Luther, radically curved in on themselves. It doesn't sit well with us which is why the vast majority of humankind have rejected this doctrine as well. We love to be in charge. We love to have the power of self-determination. We, we love to be the masters of our own fate. We love to play God. It's been that way since the fall. Eat from this tree. You will be like God. Paul ran up against it all the time. And in today's passage, he's going to raise two of the most common objections from the first century or for the 21st century. Two of the most common objections to the doctrine of election. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, that's not fair. It is unjust for God to choose one but not another. And that totally apart from the consideration of a man's merits or his works or his will. The second objection in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, what's the point? If God has already determined who will be saved and who won't, then, then how can we still be held responsible for our actions? Aren't we just 
pawns in the hands of the divine chess master? Now, what I find so interesting about these two objections is that there are good and reasonable answers to each. But Paul doesn't resort to those responses. There are, I think, rational defenses of the doctrine of election, but Paul absolutely refuses to put God on the stand. He's not going to put God on the dock. He refuses to put God on trial in order to have to defend the justice of his ways. Instead, he simply answers as Luther did. You must let God be God. So if you came this morning looking for Paul to answer your questions and to justify God in the matter of election, you're not going to get it. Rather, what you are going to get is a breathtaking description of God's absolute sovereign freedom to dispose of mercy and wrath as he will. And I contend that that is actually more beneficial to your soul than any rational apologetic that could be offered. If you're going to trust God in the midst of all of the trials and the sufferings and the and the sins and the cancer and the diseases of this life, all of the accidents which happen, all of the eventualities that you can't control, if you're going to trust God in that, you better believe that He's in control of all of those things. You better believe that God is God. You don't need a God in those moments who has to answer your questions. You don't need a God in those moments who has to justify his ways to man. You don't need a God who has to play according to your rules. You need the God who speaks out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In the words of the teacher, God is in heaven. We are on earth. So let your words be few. Or in the words of Luther, let God be God. Now, before we look to the first objection, let me point out something that may not be immediately obvious. There's a view of Romans 9 out there, and it's quite popular for obvious reasons, which says that what Paul's doing in Romans 9 is not speaking of the election of individuals to about individuals at all. He's talking about the election of nations to special blessings and service. That view is based, so far as I can tell, on three main arguments. First, when God told Rebekah that the covenant would be with Jacob and not Esau, if we look back at Genesis 25, we'll find that God said to her, two nations are in your wombs. Two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Aha! They will say. God is speaking about Jacob and Esau, not as individuals, but as the heads of two nations, Israel and Edom. All God's saying is that his chosen people through whom he will bless the world will be Israel and not Edom. Coincidentally, they'll make a similar argument from Isaac and Ishmael in Genesis 21. He's not talking about the individuals, he's talking about the nations that will come from them. Well, likewise... Here's the second argument they'll give. The verse that Paul quotes in verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. It it comes from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, where where God is using Jacob as a euphemism for Israel and Esau as a euphemism for Edom. And and they'll make the same same case. I, I also think we ought to acknowledge that there is a rationalist, humanist, Erasmus-like argument at play here. In other words, Romans 9, so the argument goes, Romans 9 doesn't mean that because it can't mean that. It simply can't be true that God chooses one for eternal salvation and not another. Wouldn't that destroy the nature of love and justice and moral responsibility? 
It's a very common argument. Now, because some of you may have heard that interpretation of Romans 9 or may hold to that interpretation or or find that interpretation in the the comments of your study Bible, uh, I want to take just a moment to respond. The, the argument that Paul is speaking of the election of nations to special blessing and, and service, individuals to eternal salvation, I think fails on at least three counts. First, nations are made up of individuals. In other words, the nation of Edom was not under God's wrath. The people of Edom were under his wrath. If you read On, in Malachi chapter 1, you will find God calling Edom the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. People. Second, such a view fails to distinguish the Abrahamic covenant with individuals, Sinai covenant with the nation of Israel. Indeed, it collapses the two covenants into one, which is a mistake we noted last week, and I won't repeat here. Third, The problem Paul is addressing is why some in Israel are saved and others in Israel are not. In other words, Paul's not talking about nations. He's talking about a nation, namely Israel. And the answer that he gives to why the word of God to Israel has not failed is that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Verse 6. What makes the difference between those Israelites who are saved and those Israelites who are not? Paul's answer, God's purpose of election, not according to works, but according to him who calls. Finally, the objections in verses 14 and 19 are raised because what Paul has just said appear to be unjust or unfair. In other words, the only reason why somebody objects, that's not fair, is if you've just said something that seems to be not fair. I can't think of a reason why anyone would object that God is unjust if what they understood Paul to mean was that God simply chose Israel over Edom as his instrument to bring salvation to the world, but that all individuals still remain free to accept or reject salvation as they will. Who's going to object to that? What what men want more than anything is self-determination, autonomy, the freedom to choose, They're not going to object to a view that leaves their free will intact. Furthermore, I can't imagine why anyone would object that what Paul has just said removes moral responsibility, verse 19, unless what Paul has just said seems to indicate that God dispenses his mercy and his wrath according to his own will and purpose rather than God's or rather than man's will and works. In other words, if ever there were a place for Paul to correct a misunderstanding, if ever there were a place for Paul to step back and say, no, 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 you've misunderstood me. That's not what I mean. It would be here. But he doesn't. The very nature of the objections themselves demonstrate that Paul really does mean what we think he means. Namely, that God has mercy on whomever he will and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, there's other reasons why Paul is speaking of the unconditional election of individuals to eternal salvation, not the least of which is that it accords with Jesus' own teaching on the subject in places like Matthew 11 and John 6 and John 10. But those reasons will have to suffice for now. I needed to dispose of that common yet erroneous interpretation of Romans 9 in order that, that you may be enabled to feel the full weight of Paul's teaching and experience something of the injustice expressed by these objections and thus be confronted with the full impact of Paul's utterly God-centered reply. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the first objection. It's stated in verse 14. Paul's response is given in verses 15 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. All right, so the first objection regards the justice of God choosing Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau, some Israelites and not other Israelites, indeed, some of humanity, but not all of humanity. And the question is, is that right? Is that fair? Is that just on God's part? Can God do that? And our initial response is no. Because that wouldn't be fair, because everyone knows that if you're going to bring snacks to kindergarten, you need to bring them for the whole class. But how does Paul respond? His response is that God is absolutely free in the exercise of his mercy. He is not constrained by man-centered notions of fairness and justice. He's constrained only by himself. His freedom is absolute. Now, in response to the objection stated in verse 14, Paul responds vigorously, by no means. It's unthinkable. It's incredible. It's even irreverent to suggest that God would act unrighteously. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18, 25. And as evidence that God has not acted unjustly, Paul quotes one passage from Exodus 33, right? He says, it's not unjust because, and he quotes from Exodus 33. Then he draws a conclusion, so then. And then he quotes another passage from Exodus, this time from Exodus 9, in defense of God's election. And then he draws a second conclusion, verse 18, so then. So the two quotations from Exodus both make essentially the same point. Verse 15 and verse 17 both make essentially the same point. And the conclusions which he draws from those passages, verses 16 and 18, also make essentially the same point. The first quotation comes from Exodus 33, 19. The context of this statement is Israel's idolatry with the golden calf and God's threat to withdraw Uh, from Israel, his presence in in judgment, as well as Moses' intercession for Israel, his plea for God not to withdraw his presence. That's the background of this this quote. So in response to Moses' plea, "Don't, don't take away your presence from us, we read this, Exodus 33, 17 to 19. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The question is, how does this answer the objection that that's not fair. Because it seems that what Paul does is is just sort of restate the problem. Right? It's not fair for God to show mercy to one and not another. No, and Paul says, no, 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 it is fair. Because God says, I show mercy to one and not another. Well, Moses asks to see God's glory, and God says he will show Moses' glory, and then, what what does he do? He announces his sovereign freedom to show grace and mercy to whomever he will. In other words, God's glory is demonstrated in the free and sovereign exercise of his mercy. Moses cries out, show me your glory. And God says, I have mercy over whom I have mercy. Moses says, Show me what constitutes your greatness, your glory. And God says, I am absolutely free in the disposal of mercy. In other words, to be God is to be sovereign in the exercise of mercy and justice. Therefore, it is not unjust 
for God to have mercy on one and not another because God is simply acting in accordance with his own divine nature. To be God is to be sovereign. Let God, therefore, be God. Paul then draws a conclusion, verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Mercy does not depend upon human willing. It doesn't depend upon human working. It doesn't depend upon human choice or human effort. Who is included in this everlasting covenant of grace and therefore who is to become an heir of eternal salvation depends entirely upon God's sovereign and merciful election. Let God be God. Then Paul quotes from Exodus 9. Verse 16, the context, of course, is Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to let Israel go, even after God inflicts upon Israel plague after plague after plague. Six plagues, in fact, have taken place by Exodus 9. So in this verse, then, God is saying to Pharaoh through Moses, here's my paraphrase, I have chosen you, but not for mercy. I've chosen you for hardening. I will harden your heart. He says that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen times in Exodus. I have confirmed you. I have sealed you in your sin and your stubborn rebellion in order that you might not let my people go in order that my power may be displayed before the face of all the nations through these plagues and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul's saying, you know, God showed mercy to Moses according to his own purpose of election and God hardened Pharaoh according to his own purpose of election. He then draws a second conclusion. Verse 18 So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So just as God is not constrained by man's will or man's exertion in in the exercise of his mercy, even so, God is not constrained by man's will in the exercise of his wrath. Those whom God saves are saved, not because they were more worthy of salvation, and those whom God judges are not judged because they are more worthy of judgment. God exercises his justice and wrath in the same manner in which he exercises his grace and mercy, namely in absolute sovereign freedom. That's Paul's answer to why it's not fair. To be God is to be sovereign, unconstrained, free in the exercise of mercy and wrath. Let God be God. The second objection is stated in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And this objection centers upon the question of moral responsibility. How can God hold Pharaoh, for instance, responsible for the hardness of his heart if God is the one who hardened it? How can God hold unbelieving Israelites responsible for their unbelief if God is the one who's hardened them? How can God hold any man responsible for his sin and unbelief if the eternal destinies of men are determined by God in eternity past? That's the question. Why does God still find fault with sinners when God wills all things whatsoever come to pass and no one resists his will? Now again, this would have been the perfect opportunity for Paul to pull back and correct our misunderstanding. No, 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 no. You've taken it too far. But he doesn't because we haven't misunderstood. Nor does he offer any rational rebuttals to the objection. Rather, he drives us right back upon the argument of God's sovereign right to dispose of his creation as he will. It's relentless. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now I'm going to make four quick points from this passage and then we'll wrap this thing up. First, I want you to notice the absolute right of the potter over the clay. Paul uses a familiar Old Testament analogy to remind the Jews and us of just who God is and of just who we are in relation to God. God is the creator, we are the creatures. God is the potter, we are the clay. Does the painting talk back to the artist? Does the sculpture answer back to the sculptor? Will man raise his voice to God? No. Everybody recognizes the proprietary rights of the creator over his creation. He can make of it and do with it what he wills. How much more then does the creator of all the universe possess absolute right over all of his creation? And how irreverent, even blasphemous is it for the creation to answer back and accuse the creator of wrongdoing, saying, why did you make me like this? Second, notice that the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy come from the very same lump. What kind of lump? A lump of sin. Paul emphasizes that the two vessels, the vessels of honor and the vessels of dishonor, they're made from the same lump. In other words, there's nothing within this this lump of clay, this lump of humanity that distinguishes one section from another or or would determine which section would get sculpted into a masterpiece and which section would get sculpted into an ashtray. There's nothing in the clay itself. It's not that one section has a different texture than another or, or, or is a better of quality than another. It's the same lump, just like Jacob and Esau came from the same womb. Likewise, there's nothing with, within man to distinguish one from another so as to ter- determine that God would show this one mercy and that one justice. All men come from the same lump. And what kind of lump is that? It's a lump of sin. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget that Romans 9 comes on the heels of Romans 1 through 8, particularly Romans 3. Should I remind you what this lump of humanity looks like? There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's the lump of clay that God's working with. That's the lump of clay out of which he forms vessels of honor, though they are undeserving, and forms vessels of dishonor who are deserving. Vessels of mercy who are undeserving, and vessels of wrath who are deserving. If you don't keep in mind that God's election is not the election of a morally neutral mankind, but rather is the election of a humanity that is actively engaged in a ferocious rebellion against God, who hate him, who despise him, whose hearts are hostile towards him, Romans 8, 7. If you don't keep that in mind, that he's dealing with the humanity that by virtue of its sinful nature and its hatred of God is deserving of wrath, then you're gonna picture God as an arbitrary ogre who creates some people for heaven and some people for hell. But that's not the case. When God chose some to be vessels of mercy to whom he would make known the riches of his glory. It was sinners whom he chose. And when God chose to harden others, forming them into vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, it was sinners whom he chose. None are good. None are righteous. None are deserving. No, not one. So don't forget what kind of clay the potter is working with. And don't forget the kind of men we're talking about. We're talking about the enemies of God. 
sinners, rebels all. Third, God's ultimate purpose in the exercise of his sovereign freedom and the demonstration of his wrath and his power is the full demonstration of his glory. This comes from verses 22 to 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to, that's important, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, the reason God prepared vessels of wrath for destruction and endured them with so much patience is because, according to Paul, number one, he desired to make known his wrath against sin. Number two, he desired to make known his power and judgment so that, number three, the full riches of his glory would be demonstrated to those vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. John Piper states it like this. In other words, the final and deepest argument Paul gives for why God acts in sovereign freedom is that this way of acting displays most fully the glory of God, including his wrath against sin and his power in judgment, so that the vessels of mercy can know him most completely and worship him with the greatest intensity for all eternity. Now that's a hard doctrine. That's what Paul says. God's ultimate desire was to show the full measure of his glory to his chosen vessels of mercy, including the glory of his holy wrath against sin and his awesome power in judgment in order that they might rejoice, the vessels of mercy might rejoice in the full splendor of his glory forever. But how, I ask you, would God demonstrate the glory of his wrath and power were there no vessels of wrath with which to demonstrate it. Fourth, notice that the vessels of mercy comprise both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, God's not speaking of the way he works with Israel only. He's speaking of the way he works amidst all mankind. Though the primary concern in this chapter has been to explain God's covenant dealings with Israel, Paul now begins to make plain that God's exercise of sovereign freedom is much broader than just Israel. It encompasses all of humanity and all of human history. Vessels of mercy include all whom God has called, both Jew and Gentile. And the vessels of wrath include all whom God has chosen. All whom he has hardened, both Jew and Gentile. Paul then provides three more Old Testament texts that underscore this truth. Verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So Paul says, you know what? The Lord's prophets foretold that God would call the Gentiles and make them his covenant people. That's verses 25 and 26. And the prophets foretold that God would bring judgment upon the vast majority of Israel and save only a remnant, verses 27 to 29. That's what God said would happen through the prophets. So, Paul says, I ask you again, has the word of God failed? No, it has not. The word of God has been fulfilled. Why? Because God has acted as God. Namely, in absolute freedom. Now, Romans 9 is difficult in more ways than one. Mike can attest to that as he kept coming into my office this week looking for the sermon to be done, and it was never done. He was always finding that I was still working through it because it's hard. It's radically different than the way that we think. We're so innately man-centered and God is so radically God-centered. And nowhere in Scripture does God's God-centeredness shine more brightly than in Romans 9. 
And Ashley can attest to you that I struggled not only intellectually but emotionally with this passage. It's a hard passage to swallow, and I've been chewing on it for 15 years. It gets stuck in the throat. But I believe with all of my heart that we can trust God. We can trust God to be true and holy and righteous and good and to act accordingly. I believe that with all of my heart that when we stand before God on the last days and all of his ways are manifest with mankind and in human history, we will do nothing other than to declare that God has done all things right and well. And God has revealed Romans 9 for our good. Near the very end of his life, Paul wrote that all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable. It's beneficial for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness in order that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I want you to know why we've spent three weeks in Romans 9. Why do this? It's hard. It doesn't feel good. Why? I had to ask myself that question this week. Why? It's because at the end of the day, I believe with all of my heart that Romans 9 was breathed out by God. And therefore, it is profitable to making men and women and children of God complete for every good work. It's for your benefit. It's for your holiness. It's ultimately for your glory that you learn to let God be God. That you learn that God is God and you are not. But as Luther wrote, it can be strong wine. It can cause people to stagger in their faith. To wonder about the nature and the character of God. To wonder about the state of their own soul. Am I elect? How can I know? Well, usually Luther's advice to that question was simple. Thank God for your torment, he would say. It's characteristic of the elect and not of the reprobate to tremble before the hidden counsel of God. So let me just just give that word of comfort to you. If you're wrestling through these matters, and at the end, and and, and at the beginning, and and underneath all the way through of your wrestling is this this notion that I'm going to persevere with, I've got to understand what it means, I've got to to deal with this because, because God said it. Hard-hearted people don't think like that. They say, eh, I don't like that. Elect people wrestle with Romans 9. But he gave further advice. He urged those troubled in their soul to leave the doctrine of election to God and simply to look to Christ. So I want to close this morning by reading you some advice from Luther that he gave to a woman, Barbara Lishkirchen, who was deeply troubled about whether or not she was among the elect. And, and, and maybe you're deeply troubled about that as well. So I, I, I commend Luther's advice to her, to you. Listen to what he wrote. When such thoughts assail you, you should learn to ask yourself. Luther was always telling his congregation to talk to themselves rather than listen to themselves. If you please, in which commandment is it written that I should think about and deal with this matter? Where does God command that I have to have all of the the details of election figured out? And when it appears that there is no such commandment, learn to say, be gone, wretched devil. You are trying to make me worry about myself. But God declares everywhere that I should let him care for me. This highest of all God's commands is this, that we hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Every day he should be our excellent mirror wherein we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness he has cared for us in that he gave his dear son for us. In this way, I say, and in no other does one learn how to deal properly with the question of predestination. Do this, namely, look to Christ and don't turn away. And it will be manifest that you believe in Christ. And if you believe in Christ, then you were called by Christ. And if you were called by Christ, then you were predestined in Christ. Do not let this mirror and throne of grace be torn away from your eyes. Contemplate Christ given for us. Then, God willing, you will feel better.
In other words, let God be God and leave election to him. As for you, you look to Christ and you hear his words, which are every bit as true as Romans 9. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are worried about whether or not you're elect. Come to me, and and I'll, I'll give you rest. Come to me, all you who are wrestling with sin and struggling with temptation and relationships are broken and you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. Come to me, and I will give you rest. So I leave this study of election. Next week's going to be easier, I promise. I leave this study of election with the words of Jesus. And I urge you to go to him. And you'll find rest for your soul. My father, this is indeed strong wine. But it's good for us to awaken us from the delusion of self-determination. The the delusion that the God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence is somehow bound by our wills and our works. It is good for us to tremble before your sovereignty. It is good for us to learn to let God be God. It is good for us And I pray for First Baptist Nixa. I pray for all those in the congregation this morning, many of whom didn't know what they were getting into when they walked into church today. I pray that you would exercise your sovereign mercy upon us and that you would withhold your hardening, which indeed would be just. That's what we deserve We don't deserve mercy. We deserve wrath. But I pray that you would withhold it from us, that you would pour out mercy planned from the foundations of the world in in abundance upon this church. Teach us to revel in your glory and sovereignty so that we may have a holy boldness as we walk through this life, knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And God, for any trembling soul here, may your mercy manifest itself in compelling them to come to Jesus with their sins, with their fears, with their doubts, to come to Jesus to find rest for their souls. For if they come, and if they remain, and if they cling to him, It's the best evidence there is that they're among those chosen from the foundations of the world. God, work your will in the midst of our people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.